I was originally scheduled to give this talk at the start of the month. And for those of you who deliberately arranged their summer holidays to avoid it, um, <laughs> all I can say is that through some drastic engineering, gotcha. <laughs> so, but on, a, but on a serious note, I really want to thank everyone um, for all that they have done in their prayers and in their practical expressions of love over this past few weeks. Recently, um, Jeff took us via helicopter over the Book of Romans, and he circled a bit over chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and he very helpfully described these verses as hinge verses. You could also maybe see these verses like the central pivot of a seesaw, where knowing the doctrine about God and living for God are perfectly balanced. What I would like to do this morning is to return to Romans 12, get out of the helicopter and spend a bit of time on foot looking closely at these two pivot verses, but also considering some of the practical instructions from the chapters which follow them. So let's read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. As you probably recall from Jeff's talk, the first 11 chapters of the Book of Romans are a presentation of the theological underpinnings of the Gospel. Paul has presented God's revelation of himself through the creation. He has explained the origins and consequences of sin and also God's just, righteous and impartial judgment of it. But we also see laid out the grand themes of grace and of justification freely by faith through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is all apart from the works of the Mosaic law. Um, the gospel of Christ is the centerpiece. We also see our union with Christ in his death, and this is brought to the fore with all of the implications that that brings concerning sin in our lives. Then we see that we are the adopted children and heirs of God, being given the assurance that nothing can separate us from God's love. His children are eternally united with him. And then as we progress, we find that Christ is presented as the great rock and deliverer from Zion, the only true object of saving faith and the remover of our sins. And then we get to the end of chapter 11, and Paul gives his reaction to all of this. In chapter 11, verse 33, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. 
Amen. You might have thought that this uplifting note of God-centered praise would have been a great place to end the book of Romans. But instead, after all of the theology, we then encounter our pivot verses in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I do want us to consider these verses in detail. But before we do, let's think first about the balancing practical requirements which follow them. The chapters on the other side of the seesaw, if you want to think of it like that. Now, my intention is not to go into each one of these in detail, but more to give you a sense of their scope. I would describe these commands almost like a spiritual MOT checklist for the Christian. They deal with a variety of life issues, both within the church and outside it too. I see um, at least 12 requirements for being spiritually roadworthy. I'm just going to briefly think of some of, the, some of these now. The first requirement is found in chapter 12, verse 3, and it's have an attitude of humility, making an honest assessment of ourselves and our abilities within the church. I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So in other words, know your place and work contentedly in the sphere of service where God has placed you. Two, we need to ensure that we make good use of our gifting within the body of the church. Verse 6 of chapter 12 says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. There are a few things worse than a gift that isn't used because both you and the body of Christ will lose out. Each person's gifting is different, so aspire to work to the particular strengths that God has granted you. Three, our attitude to the body of Christ should be one of righteous sincerity and genuine love, with a zero-tolerance attitude towards sin. Verse 9 says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honour. Fourth, our service to God should be carried out with a fervent enthusiasm. Amen. Verse 11 says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Another thing that comes to the fore is prayer. Prayer should be our default mode of operation, even in extreme circumstances. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Practical empathy. We should be sensitively involved in understanding and meeting the needs of our fellow Christians. Verse 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. <clears throat> Providing practical and emotional support to our brothers and sisters in need is truly of great value. Never underestimate the impact that that has. 
Seven, what about those who do us wrong? What about our approach in, in these aspects of life? Verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. This is a difficult and nuanced area and beyond the scope of this study to fully unpack. But suffice to say that great wisdom is necessary and we need to distinguish between simple interpersonal situations and more serious moral or criminal scenarios. Which leads us into chapter 13 and our eighth consideration. Here, our relationship to the state becomes the focus on how every Christian should be an exemplary, law-abiding citizen. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Number nine, we must have a robust approach to moral challenges and a ruthless approach towards sin. Verse 13, chapter 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make some provision, oh, sorry, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Then number 10, we see the importance of spiritual discernment, judgment, and a sense of proportionality in theological issues. And so in, in chapter five, in chapter 14, verse five, it says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. The issues of food and drink and the observance of days are the focus here. But what this teaches us is that we need to pick our spiritual hills to die on with great care. If someone differs from us on some issue or other, do we cut them off or do we cut them some slack? We need great spiritual and biblical discernment to make that call. Then the other thing that comes across in these chapters is the idea of accountability. And we are reminded of our ultimate accountability towards God and the importance of mutual edification and the work of God trumps any secondary hobby horses that we might feel passionate about. So in Romans 14 verse 12, it says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. And then finally in this section, point number 12, we have to remember that our own strength is not sufficient for these things. 
Chapter 15, verse 5 says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not easy by any stretch, and we definitely need the God of endurance's enabling. And we need to remember that unity and the glory of God is the aim. So, having gone down this spiritual MOT checklist, how do you think you did? It can be sobering to read down these verses and to make an honest self-assessment of our spiritual health. All of these items, though, however commendable, can be just empty behaviours if they are not motivated by our sense of responsibility primarily to God. I would say that it would be possible to know the theology and even also to live the theology and for there still to be something missing. And that's why we need that central pivot on which all of this rests, which brings us back to verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12. And I just want to delve into these two verses a bit. Paul commences chapter 12 um, in verse 1, and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. The word here, appeal, is a strong word, and it's not just a passing suggestion. It's a heartfelt urge. And the idea is that Paul is calling us alongside him to really stress that in the light of all the heartwarming theology he has just presented, that we should make what comes next of top priority in our lives. What follows is important. And then the weight of what he is about to present is underscored when he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What follows will most certainly not be something that we can pull off in our own strength. The word mercies embodies God's compassion, kindness, grace, and favor. And Paul is saying that you're going to need a plurality of these mercies from God to comply with what comes next. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies But hang on a second, Paul, we've just had theology, food for the mind, but now you're talking about bodies. Does this mean we're actually going to have to do something in the light of all of this? And as we have seen, the answer is an emphatic yes, but with an added dimension. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Sacrifice doesn't sound easy. Sacrifice implies doing something that's going to involve putting our own selves and our own desires last. The language of sacrifice is, of course, very poignant, since Paul has been dealing with the sacrifice of Christ earlier in the book of Romans. But there is more. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. 
The word holy means specially set apart for God's use. And the reason for this, that we might be acceptable or well-pleasing to God. What might come as a shock is that in an age of perceived self-entitlement, it's not actually all about us. It's all about him. Your success as a living sacrifice must be measured by how acceptable it is to God. I think it would be remiss not to quote from the Apostle Peter here, who is in perfect agreement with Paul. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let's look at the next phrase. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There is a bit of debate over exactly what is meant by the word spiritual here. The word used is logikos, think logic, and it has sometimes been rendered as rational, your rational service. So what Paul might be saying here is that presenting your bodies as living sacrifices is the totally rational thing to do when you consider all that has been accomplished by Christ on our behalf. The only other New Testament author to use this word logikos is the Apostle Peter. And in 1 Peter 2 and 2, it says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual or logikos milk that you may grow up, that by it you might grow up into salvation. Somehow, rational or logical milk doesn't seem to be um, the, the quite right here. What it's telling me on my screen is different from what it's telling you on, on your screen. That proves I didn't make it up. So, um, thankfully, in our Romans passage, I think that either interpretation of this word can be instructive for us. Because after what Christ has done for us, presenting our bodies would be both the spiritual and the logical thing to do. But Paul is not so naive to, um, to think that this vital aspect of our Christian lives will be a walk in the park and without difficulty. So he says in Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. When Paul talks about the world here, he's not talking about the geological globe floating in space, but rather the age in which we find ourselves. This includes the culture with its practices, worldviews, belief systems, norms, and standards. In essence, we are talking about any philosophy or any practice which exalts itself above the truth of God. In 1 Corinthians 2 and 6, Paul says this. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age 
who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The wisdom of this world, or this age, culminated in the crucifixion of Christ, which was the greatest crime ever perpetrated. And that is the same underlying mindset of the culture we are living in today. It is the mindset of antichrist, and we have to resist it. And that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. The verse says, do not be conformed to this age. This means that there is an external pressure on us to comply with this age, but there is also part of us that can be quite willing to comply. We can be enticed by our own desires. And so Paul is saying we must be alert to both sources of pressure. We must make the sacrifice. So a practical example, maybe you're being asked to do something, let's say, and work. And you know it's not right. And you so much hate controversy. And so part of you wants to comply, but you don't. And you refuse, and you stand up to it, and you feel the sacrifice of that. But remember that you're serving the Lord Christ, and God is well pleased, and that's what counts for eternity. Maybe going down a particular career path might involve compromises to your faith, and so you deny yourself, and you don't follow that path, and you feel the sacrifice, but you have pleased God. But you know that conformity to this age can be even more subtle than that. In the parable of the seeds and the soils, the Lord talks about the cares of the age and the deceitfulness of riches. We do need to be on our guard that even the very legitimate concerns for our well-being can possess us unawares, shifting our sense of spiritual perspective and becoming a snare for us. The realms that we occupy, be they occupational, educational, our social circle, what we do in our leisure time, what we watch on YouTube, what we read, all of this will influence us, influence us and will play a part in shaping and moulding us. That's self-evident. All you have to do is look at clothing trends and fashion to see it at work. And then there's the whole concept of social contagion and the pressure of ideologies. So Paul is saying, make sure that you manage all of this. Be aware of your environment. Engage it from a spiritual perspective and don't be passively molded by it. On the other hand, Paul does envisage change and development. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Interestingly, the word for transformed is the same word used for the transfiguration of Christ. Our word metamorphosis is derived from it, and it denotes a change of shape or appearance. As you can see, we've had a change of shape and appearance on the screen. So 
In a sense, I'm glad to put that down. <laughs> so Paul himself uses this word in just one other place. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory into another. For this comes from the Lord. The type of transformation we should be aiming for is that of becoming more like the Lord. It is a process from one degree of glory to another. But it can only be achieved by keeping our eye on God's glory, aided by the Holy Spirit. But moving back into verse 12, Paul is not talking about a mere physical transformation. The change flows from the renewal of the mind. He is talking about our very thought processes and being transformed to make us more Christ-like. The late atheist Christopher Hitchens made a failed attempt to unsettle the Christian theologian Douglas Wilson in a debate. He caricatured God as an overlord who was analysing our every motive and convicting us of thought crimes. The wind was taken out of Hitchens' sails when Wilson responded, and justly so. You see, the mind is really the most important part of our being. And as Christians, we need to remember that the Lordship of Christ even extends to our minds. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4 about the renewed mind. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You would nearly think that Paul was being consistent with himself. So, when we move back into Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, we notice that the phrase says, be transformed. And this has a passive aspect to it, i.e. we're being worked on by God. But it's also a command, and there is an active responsibility on our part to ensure that this transformation actually takes place, that this renewal of our mind actually happens. And here is a challenge for us. What proportion of our time do we spend thinking about, reading about, or talking about God? And even in the mundane duties of life, do we do them with the glory of God at the forefront of our minds? Lives are challenging and busy for sure, but the fact remains inescapable that the degree to which you consider God's glory is the degree to which you will be transformed. Do you want to be transformed from glory into glory? Or would we prefer to be stunted and squashed by the molding machine of this age? Let's look briefly at the last part of verse two. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In our lives, we will be confronted by many challenges and decisions, and some will be more consequential than others. 
But if we have our minds spiritually developed and renewed, then that will give us the discernment capacity to ensure that our choices are acceptable to God. And that's good and plenty. God does not expect us to have some sort of mystical sixth sense to be able to determine his secret counsels in advance. Knowing the will of God is not the magical ability to sneak peek the future. Nowhere does the Bible tell you to use the Bible like some sort of Christian tarot card machine. But rather, God provides us with precepts from his revealed truth, which, if we invest the time to learn now, will stand us in good stead when we need them. You might find yourself one day in one of life's storms unable to pick up a Bible. But as someone has wisely said, that emphasizes the importance of actually preparing yourself now while you can, so that you can make use of that investment when you really need it. So, these two verses tell us that if we have made the sacrifices necessary to maintain a renewed and transformed mind, then with God's enabling, we will be set to make the right judgment calls in all departments and relationships of our lives, whether in church, work, home, or at school. And so we're now set to roll our sleeves up and put Romans chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15 into God-pleasing, meaningful action. So let's summarize what we have learned this morning. Paul doesn't see any disconnect between the doctrinal underpinnings of the gospel and its practical outworking. Good deeds without doctrine is just philanthropy. Doctrine without deeds is just dead intellectualism. We need both in balance. The Christian gospel has rich theological underpinnings which should spur us into action as we use our gifts in the church, as we interact with members of the church, as we deal with spiritual and doctrinal challenges, as we relate to the government, as we relate to our enemies. All of these interactions should be carried out with humility, generosity, enthusiasm, selflessness and moral purity, all in the context of prayer and with the glory of God as our primary aim, remembering that we will be accountable to him. We are totally powerless to do this in our own strength. We absolutely need the empowerment of the God of endurance. It will require sacrifice, but the result is good, acceptable to God, and perfect. Thank you. Back up to you, Jeff. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.